I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. This is a show where we celebrate not having real jobs. <laughs> what do we think about that one? I, I have a real job though, man. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. You celebrate not having a real job. I, I spent most of the day in my pajamas. I'm not going to lie. It's Friday though. Yeah, sure. Uh, Quentin, before we get started, I want to make sure all of our listeners are checking us out on the Facebook facebook.com slash two enthusiasts and giving us a follow on twitter at two enthusiasts we don't have a lot of twitter followers it's kind of weird we're, we have a few facebook followers do we tweet not really well then yeah. duh okay fair enough. right I don't, you got to give me command to be do twittering twat twatting because i don't the only thing i do on twitter is just link any instagram photo because yeah. my phone does it, whatever. Just, yeah. okay, I'll put Twitter. And every once in a while, I get these messages about somebody favoriting a tweet. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, whatever. Right? I, I don't. <laughs> cool, thanks. I don't, <laughs> I don't engage with it at all because I don't really, the 140 word or 120 word or whatever thing. And I, I'm not, I'm just not witty and I don't need the, it's another complication. So I have it. I did it when we started doing this, thinking perhaps at some point in time, I'm going to have to engage with it. But really, fuck it is, is kind of my view of that. Whereas Instagram is interesting, the photos, I'm still trying to figure out if it's worthwhile. And so I've been doing it for about six months and I'm just not really sure if it's worth worth my time other than it's a really good conduit to get pictures onto Facebook. So I just use it for that. So it's kind of happenstance. Well, I'm going to Jean-Luc Picard you and be like, number one, make it so, give you the Twitter access. Okay. All right. And we'll get done. I mean, we should make an Instagram account too. So let's preemptively say, follow us on Instagram at... Two enthusiasts. Hopefully, it's not already taken. Yeah, right. That would suck. Yeah, I'm, if it, I'll just go back and edit it, and it'll be like fancy feet, ninety three. <laughs> fancy feet. Okay. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Ghost X forty one on the iTunes uh, Marketplace podcast reviewing station for giving us a review and asking me to embrace the kickstands up. No, I will not. No one should embrace I, the kickstand. I can't blame you. It's, I'm it's, putting my foot down. I'm putting my <laughs> kickstand down and riding off to the sunset on that one. Mm-hmm. Just no bueno. So I I still embrace it. I understand the hate, but I'm totally going to. Yeah. Just... yeah. You've, you've created something. You're It's like Frankenstein and his monster. Mm-hmm. So just when like a year or two from now, when it's gone sideways on you, just this is the moment when. I don't know. I like to think if we're going to think about monsters, I think to think it's it's like the Cthulhu of monsters it's what? a it's a what's a cthulhu cthulhu the the weird squid god thing that oh the the that's not the rastafarian thing is it no but it looks like it like you could totally mistake a the squid god thing for a pastafarian i think right? i kind of know what you're talking about but n- i don't like I've, I've definitely i definitely know you were referencing H- something i have seen P- yeah lovecraft have you never uh, no well I, that's actually kind of surprising considering your quasi nerdy tendencies you're gonna have to look it up i guess there's some reading for you look into hp lovecraft okay and uh cthulhu for president because i for one embrace our squidly overlords yeah exactly right uh let's stop talking about this and start talking about motorcycles okay because that's what this show is all about and shirking your real job yes 
Shirking. Still working on that tagline. Working and shirking. Working on our shirking. <laughs> working. Jerking the gherkin. Uh, working wow. and shirking. <laughs> are you drinking Mountain Dew tonight? What are you doing? No, just like, that's just I've water. I've got some sort of weird peach oh, pear concoction the... that you that you have. In, I, I didn't get, grab the beer in time. so I'm... It cleanses the palate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the news. Uh, quick one. Uh, I know we did a show on it. The EPA trying to restrict the use of uh, race parts on the track and uh, emissions for, for vehicles that were meant for on-road but being used in off-road uses or off-highway uses, I should say. Uh, so that finally got scuttled. The EPA has retracted the, uh, the language it was trying to put forth and basically mostly thanks to, to SEMA. Is it? So the SEMA lobby lobbied oh they lobbied and yeah. i think i think the ama is trying to glom onto it too so we'll give a little we'll give a little shout out to the ama on that but i think it was sema okay because that's that's car and it was probably mostly from the car side oh yeah there's so much, there's shot. so much more money like sema as an organization probably has more money than than the ama just because the car market is so much larger than the motorcycle market and the aftermarket parts for it is is so much larger sure but i think i think for most motorcycle enthusiasts that's that's probably good news yep Brap, we shall. We shall brap. The brap on, brother. Other, another, I, we have to talk about Jorge Lorenzo going to Ducati. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, obviously, big news in the MotoGP paddock. Uh, I know the paddock pass guys have been talking about it, but we should probably spend some spend some words on it. I totally, that was totally your phone. That's your pocket knife. That's your phone. There you go. Silencio, por favor, for para Jorge. Let's talk about Jorge. That's pretty good Spanish. I'm not, I don't have good. Um, you don't know it's good Spanish because you don't know I'm Spanish. Cool. I, like, I, I know, could have just completely fucked that up. I know California Spanish. I know how to order food in Spanish. I wish I knew Spanish. I wish I really do. I, I wish I was better at. Yeah. I took French in school and then realized like that plan totally backfired. I think I just took it like with the hope that cute girls would be in the class. Yeah, and it didn't work did out. Did not work out. Well, funny story. While we wait for you to finish whatever the fuck you're doing on your phone, uh, one of my one of the girls in my French class ended up being a porn star. So, so shout out to you, Jenny. Congrats. Jenny Jameson? No, no. I, I'm i not even going to say her name. Oh, dude. No. I'll tell you offline. Oh, why, why would the listeners want to know? No, it's just weird. I, I feel dirty now. Because <sighs> like, the weird thing is like, she, she's not a mainstream porn star. I will say, I will say that. Like, like, I would be like, that's the thing. Like, if I said her name and someone on the other end of this like microphone was like, oh my God, I love her. She's hot. I'd be like, really? You've heard of her? That's interesting. Yeah. That's a commentary. Yeah. Don't ever shake my hand, sir. <laughs> <laughs> You're into some weird stuff. Uh, how do you make an octopus laugh? <laughs> <laughs> you give him tentacles. <laughs> Rate us on iTunes and send email to two enthusiasts at asphaltandrubber.com. Do, do you think anybody's going to get that, though? The tentacles? I got it. Yeah, that, that's tent- pretty. That's, yeah, that's a weird. That's, that's some a, funny shit. That's a weird type of porn, right? Is tentacle porn? Oh yeah, I didn't get the tentacle porn. I just thought it was silly. I just thought it was a good pun. Well, I was just making the joke oh because my God, of that. Sorry, porn. see, I didn't. I well, I knew you. That was too weird. It's too weird. But I know you that were was the one. Weird. You were the one that brought up the tentacle porn because it came up with. I think it was the the R1 recall. No, I'm just trying to think of weird things that come out of Japan. No, it was the. Uh, uh, Moto Corsa calendar where the um, 
the the calendar they did the Panagali the Managali Managali and didn't you f- find didn't it come to come to us oh through, and there was some oh, really no, weird it wasn't, website it wasn't <laughs> no it wasn't well okay so this is a good story obviously we're gonna get nowhere in this sorry. show so sorry for partying just crack open a beer now join the party <laughs> it's going sideways really quick oh man this episode don't rate don't rate this episode on itunes this is not one of those episodes uh if you're an advertiser just turn it off now we're done we're done it's all good uh we talked about really good things and you should advertise on the show thank you uh so so yeah so for those that don't know moto corsa did well they did the they did the original one which i'm trying to remember the name was the ducati panigale what was the original one called the original calendar? Yeah, not the Managali, the one before it. I, I don't. Oh, it was seductive, but yeah. it was it, the, With the Ducati. Ducati is inside. Sedu- yeah, yeah. It's spelled. Spell right. out seductive, and you'll see the word Ducati in there somewhere. Yep. So that was like your your typical hot girl on a bike calendar, and um, I think Alicia did she shoot that? Yeah, I think she did. Yeah, Alicia Elvine, the moto lady, uh, shot that because she was originally a moto course employee. And it was mm-hmm. Kylie Shay. Got a shout out to Kylie Shay Llewellyn. That was the model. Good for her. Yep. She looked great. Yep. Yeah. She sold it. I bought a bike because of it. That's not true, but whatever works to make <laughs> yeah, the marketing sure. work. So so you know, it was it was cool. I don't think I don't think we ran the story on asphalt nor because it's it's yeah. a girl on a bike and I don't wanna I don't wanna push that trope. But uh a, f- a number of months later, I don't think it was quite a year, I think I want to say it was like nine months later, like a baby, a baby later. Uh, they re motocross revisited that photo shoot, but did a, a take. So it was guys from the shop dressed up like Kylie, like in similar outfits in, you know, similar exact poses, same poses as pretty, tried as close yeah, as they pretty could. damn spot on. Alicia came into the photo shoot again. And so was able to recreate the shots and they're, they're really close. And if you Google it, well, if you Google it, you'll find it. But I, if you go on asphalt and rubber and search it, I think, um, just search Managali and it'll all pop up. It was really, it was so really, to speak. So, <laughs> more, some things more than others might pop up. I don't know. Whatever you're into, I don't judge. Right. Well, I am. <laughs> um, but it was an, it was an interesting thing. So, so we did the story and, you know, obviously it got a big reaction. But this, and this is back in, I think, this 2013, is, late 12. Way back. I think the calendar was this 13. Is, this is the way back machine. But yep. then, like a year later, I'm watching the traffic just. Just there's just one day I just turn it on and the the A&R, you're talking about the traffic to your website to Asphalt and Rubber, to Asphalt and Rubber. just so p- people understand. Yeah, I'm watching our server stats just hockey stick. The 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 A&R servers are just going ballistic, and I'm like, huh, that's weird. What's going on? And it's this Managali story. So some publication, some fairly big regular news publication in like I want to say Perth, Australia, or or Brisbane, Australia, somewhere in Australia, picked it up. And it started, it started getting traction and, and then it went from this Australian publication to like Huffington post and CNN called me up at one point. I think the local news came out to the shop and interviewed a room. It, it went viral. I know Alicia did a couple interviews. It just went around the globe. It was, it was pretty cool to see, but I was like, that's really interesting. I wonder how that started. Like really, like how does someone come across this like a year later? Like just were they just stumbling across the NR? So you dig into it a little bit more, and I find that this like pro how do I want to describe this? It was like a pro well, there was like a pro feminism group or pro feminist a feminist group pro feminist come on Johnson use your words it's a feminist group on Facebook 
at one point was sharing it. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. So I find that. And then I go like and dig a little bit farther. And it's like this BDSM group on Facebook mm-hmm. had shared it. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. So someone in the BDSM group is also a member of this feminist group. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, so you got some like dominatrix feminist. That's, that's interesting. It's a, sure. It's an interesting transgression. So I'm like, okay, well, how the BDSM guys find it? And I'd be a little bit more searching, a little bit more digging. And it turns out there's like this message forum. I don't even know if it was, I think it was in Japanese, but it's basically these people that trade in Japanese animation porn had come across the Managali photos. And it was like, you know, like the off topic forum for this form of Japanese porn, Japanese cartoon porn. And it was like, oh, hey, check out this crazy photo shoot. Isn't this so wicked? These guys dressed like girls doing this thing. And yeah. I like this guy in the red heels. He looks good. Yeah. And you're like, wow, what an evolution. through So we went from like Japanese anime porn to BDSM Facebookers to like helicopter mom feminists to <laughs> Australia, HuffPo, yeah. CNN, Asphalt and Rubber. That you, you found the zero patient. It was like... Yeah, it was like epidemic. Like how well, we need to find the source to to kill it, right? Oh man, that's a so, weird so, thing. But the takeaway on this is, I have at least one asphalt and rubber reader who is super into like Japanese anime tentacle porn. And that's what I remember is that you sent me a link to something, yeah, it, it was, and I had never seen anything like it, and it was a freak out. So hence, it's, hence it's, my 10 tickles joke. Cause it, I, I thought for sure you'd get that. Sorry. It's a few standard deviations from the norm. Yeah. Cause I kind of remember like, I remember like tentacle porn, Managali, and then tentacle porn. It's just, it was just like bookshelved. Yeah. I'm a sucker for Bookend. it. Bookend. Yeah. You're a sucker for, oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. All right. How much more time on the show? Great. Uh, I'm, and mollusk make these jokes. <laughs> Just get it all out. Just get it all, all right, that's it. It's all like right, therapy. so so. Meanwhile, you know, Jorge Lorenzo. Yeah, how, right. Like that's the that's the one. If somebody can map this out, mm. like how did we get from where? Zero to where? patient. The, the the rabbit holes we go. Yeah. The, okay. The zero patient. We're at the zero patient. Jorge Lorenzo is the zero patient. All right. I'm I'm fairly bummed about it because I'm not a big Jorge Lorenzo fan, but I'm stoked in some ways because you know damn well the way Ducati has been going and the curve of the bike's performance is on the way up and instead of receding where it was when Rossi got on. So it was already in a pretty bad way post stoner and the Ro- and Rossi got on it when it was in a, the worst way The but the GP Desmond Sidici of the time. So now I'm not saying it's a world beater, but it's, it's a fairly decent machine. So to see Jorge get on it at the end of this season, that you're hopeful that it will be good and that frankly it'll be good for the sport in that there will be a more legitimate chance that Ducati will be able to take it to Honda and Yamaha instead of just be a Honda Yamaha and every once in a while desperately a Ducati show right and then the same time it it is interesting to see what the doors open up for other riders to get into Yamaha so finally after so many how long has Jorge Lorenzo been at Yamaha that came in came right in since yeah. 2006, six, seven, eight, something like I'd that. Have to look long it time, up. long enough to where it's like, okay, finally, 
Get them on another brand. Right, right. That's good. I, I think that's good for the sport. And a lot of people are like, no, you should stay with the same brand forever. And, you know, sometimes that's cool. You know, Kevin Schwantz is always identified with Suzuki. Or, yeah, Suzuki. So that's good. But, you know, it would, he would have been better off if he'd have jumped ship and gotten on a good bike. But that's, well, like we talked about on a recent show, that's what made him epic, right? But Eddie Lawson turned into God when he went from one brand to another and one, I think, back to back. Awesome, right? Championships. Uh, Rossi. Same thing, man. When he went from Honda to Yamaha and turned them the F around and turned them into a multi, multi, multi-time world champion, uh, and a lot of people attribute that to Rossi. I think it was a, it was definitely a lot Yamaha, but he did a pretty good job of, of helping him out. So the same job that he didn't do at Ducati for whatever reason, uh, and we that could be a whole show is what what happened at Ducati at that time. Now seems pretty good. And, you know, the, the, the Jorge Lorenzo not fan in me is bummed, but, you know, it's good for the sport. I think it's a good general thing. That's my take. I think it's really good for the sport. I feel like we're, I think, I feel like we're like busting up a monopoly in a way where you yeah. have like totally. two manufacturers with two or three riders. And that was like, that was, old, that was your podium. It was just like, just shuffle the cards. It's going to be aliens, aliens, aliens. Yeah, Everybody gonna, talked about aliens. And it's like, ah, uh, right. And now we've got like some diversity. Like you're going to get, you're going to get someone probably young and good on the Yamaha. Maverick. Uh, we'll see if it's Maverick. Well, somebody like that. Like, it'll, it'll be, be someone. It'll be Maverick a Maverick or one of those Fargo's, something like that. Yeah, it'll probably be, I think, I think either Maverick or Alex Rins. And I think, I think each growing day is probably more Alex Rins. But, but it could be just as easy. Like we could see a Danny Pedrosa or we could see, you know, any like, yeah. Like there is like some, like there's going to be a major shakeup. In the the roster, and that'd be rad, and that's great because like I want to see some people on different bikes. I'm tired of seeing, you know, the same old people at the front, the same bikes at the front. I want to see a more competitive grid, and and watching uh, the Suzuki get better, you yep. know, with each passing race, yep. and and even Aprilia is making. Are some, they? Some, I haven't seen headway. that at all. They're 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 making progress. I mean, it's not like Suzuki where it's like, yeah, you know, a Suzuki podium, yeah, that happened. Okay, yeah, you know, like. I don't know if they'll win a race this year, but they might like something, yeah. something weird might happen. Someone might crash yeah. or then the rain, like something could upset the balance and they could be in there. Like Aprilia, I think they're a little bit farther out, yeah, but like but line, we're seeing the progress. There. They're seeing the progress and then KTM is going to come in. Like I'm so stoked for the 2017 season. Cause you're going to have, I'm doing the math in my head, five manufacturers and like three legitimate manufacturers fighting for the win, maybe four. So as you, I mean like that's the thing I sit there. I just said five. I think there's actually six. Doesn't matter. There's gonna be a lot more hey, than just the Honda show. Yamaha, Honda Yamaha, Ducati, Honda right. Yamaha, Honda right. Yamaha, Ducati. Right. right. That's what it is. It needs to be all of them in it mixed, and that's a good thing. It's only going to increase the uh, the sports presence, and 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 we're watching almost a renaissance of MotoGP right now. Like each race is seeing record levels, not record levels, but we're seeing growth over the years before. In fact, some some races are seeing record levels. Uh, I want to say the Coda race, the Austin race, was the largest attendance it's ever had. Yeah, but most of that's attributed to the fact that there's no other USGP this year, and that there helps. has been for the past that helps, decade. For sure, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna front, but you know, at the same time, like it's positive. You're seeing positive growth at every racetrack last year. Yeah, sure. Every racetrack last year. I want to say, don't quote me on it, because it's but it's damn near close to it. Double digit growth at every racetrack last year. Like that's substantial. Sure. Um, and if it's not double digital at every track, it is like 16 out of 18, 17 out of 18. 
Yeah. So it's it's damn near it. So it bodes really well, and I think I think hopefully that'll get people excited about motorcycle racing and in, in, as a whole. Like maybe we'll see World Superbike uh, numbers and you know go up. Maybe we'll see Moto America get more uh, fans and, and and spectators and you know viewership. Like every everyone's on BN right now, which I think is is smart and helpful. Um, so there's one place to go for for motorcycle racing in the USA if you're if you're an American race fan. Um, you know, abroad, I'm not quite sure what, what the UK TV package looks like, if it's on BT or not, or Sky or Eurosport or what. But, you know, it's it's interesting. It's interesting to watch it uh and What do you think motivations are? I mean, there's been a lot of conjecture. I wanted to hear your opinion. Motivations on... Oh, for, for Jorge? For Jorge. I mean, for Ducati, uh, I think it's... When we agree, it's a no-brainer. Ducati, yeah. Ducati was it was a have-to. It was a have-to. Because it's, it's one of those things where, like, I think they feel that they have the package or they have the package close enough now where, like you're refining the machine to tailor a specific rider. Like it's, it's 95% there. The next 5% is getting it to what the rider needs. That's, and that's a huge, and that, part that's a huge part, to, right? but, and that's development, but that's, that's where they're at. And, I, and they must feel confident in their ability. One, to have that package where it is now and two, their ability to get it where it needs to go to be able to, cause the, the, the money being talked about is like 15 million a year ish to Lorenzo. There's been a couple of reports um, of varying degrees and the number is between 10 and 20 million and it's probably closer to 15 a year uh, 20 million is just insane 10 is probably a little low because that's what Yamaha was offering ish um, so I think I think for Jorge one it's the money I don't think that's I don't think that's the main priority but like that's that's of course going to be part of it um, I think for him it's you know you know I had a at a colleague at Austin we were sitting around waiting for um for Rossi's press debrief and it was just we were just commenting that the post race press conference how relaxed the the riders were there and this is after the pre events conference and this is after the post qualifying press conference and we're like interesting who's who's the rider that's missing from this group and of course it's Valentino Rossi because he you can call it mind games if you want. I think that's that's kind of bullshit, to be honest. But there is an element of he is either deliberately or indirectly causing chaos around him. And I think it's got to be very stressful for, for Lorenzo to be inside the Yamaha garage. I think the main the main issue at the, at the heart of it is when all this nonsense and the, the Sepang clash happened last year. I feel like uh, Lorenzo feels that yamaha didn't get his back yeah to his to his sure. satisfaction and, and yamaha has always tried to to skirt this line of we don't have a number one rider we have two number one riders we have two top riders like we have a a rossi who's like the media darling and we have the lorenzo who's like you know you just get him in at the lead and turn one and it's game over um they never really they never really delineated who was their preference and maybe that's just how you manage those two titans of ego but at the end of the day, Lorenzo kind of got sucked into the Marquez Rossi bash, and he didn't. He certainly didn't help himself with his own actions. But like for the most part, he's on the fringe of that, just kind of getting the the shit piled on him. And Yamaha really didn't do anything, and they didn't really set aside Rossi and be like, "Hey, knock it off. That's your teammate." And they didn't really come to Lorenzo's defense. And there's a couple opportunities to do so, especially right after Malaysia. And I think it cost him. I think it cost him uh, one of the probably the fastest rider in the paddock right now uh and maybe one of the most impressive riders to come through motor gp so i don't know what lesson they'll take away from there and i mean honda definitely had to learn their lesson with rossi when they put the machine before the rider and you know he walked away from from honda forever 
And uh, change the shape of MotoGP, man, because I tell you, after watching that, that, being a fan in the 90s, watching the 500 GP, Honda, 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 and then MotoGP, that bike was so much better than everything else, so it was Honda, Honda. It was on its way to being Honda Fest, Honda Fest, and then him going there and changing the, the whole scope of it, similar to what could happen with Jorge, or we could see Jorge circa, when was it? He was in the doldrums for a couple of years. Really bad, like head case, stupid bad. It was not just last year, it was a year before, a year before maybe. Whatever it was, where Jorge was just, couldn't eat a cracker right. The guy was, every, <laughs> he was doing everything wrong and it was obvious. It was like, well, that guy's fucked. Whatever it was, yeah. mental, physical, bike, whatever it yeah. was, something was bad or a combination of all those things. Casey Stoner had a really good way of getting under Lorenzo's skin. And so there's a couple of those seasons where, they would be like like qualifying, like Casey would just go out and do like three laps, set the fastest time, and come back in and just be done. And be like, all right, George, beat it. And you can either beat it or you can't. And that would that would destroy Lorenzo when he couldn't do it because because he's a little bit of a head case. Um, so that's my worry is that he won't be able to do the things that he has figured out so well to do in the past couple of years with the Yamaha, and that he'll get on the bike and get. You know, get off in whatever way, because I think he's very finicky. He's not a robust character, right? I think he's extremely he's, finicky. I would say he's more Biagi-like, and like when the bike isn't a hundred percent, yeah, it messes him. It sure. messes him up. Whereas like Marquez, <laughs> and I think Casey Stoner or two great examples of guys that can ride around bikes with deficiencies to a point. But I think Casey Stoner completely screwed the pooch with the Ducati. After a while, I was like he could not make that thing work and it was how much was that him how much was that ducati how how far did they get down a, a really bad path because of him oh i don't think that i don't think you can lay any of that at casey's feet i don't think that is i think I, I that will. is I'll, I'll do that right now yeah i know you will i know because i know you're a hater uh, you didn't learn anything from a last episode flag flags yeah. up absolutely hater yeah you didn't learn anything from a last episode and that's fine i don't judge you quentin <laughs> You know, we're still bros, mm -hmm. but no, I don't think you can put that. I don't think you can put that at Casey's doorstep. I think that that is a testament to how effed up Ducati Corsa was at the time with Preziosi and the way that he had his team managed and like the way, the way that Ducati Corsa at that time and space was described to me was you have Preziosi who's in charge of Ducati's MotoGP program. He's the head engineer and he graduated from a, a specific engineering school in Italy and then everyone underneath him, and at that school, he is like God. Like he's like their prized like student. Yeah, sure. Like he went on and look what he did. And that's literally how like they recruit people to come to that school. And then you have because he won a world championship for him. Because he's the man, you know. Right. Pretty impressive. He's thing. the man in Italy, and, I, and more power to him. Um, and he came up with some really. I think I think he had some really creative ideas. The the problem was is like I think he just had a lot of yes men. And the way it was described to me is everyone underneath him came from that school as well and held him in such high regard. He could do no wrong. There was no ability for pushback. There was no information exchange from the racing team that's on the road versus the racing guys that are back at the factory. There was a lot of silos. There was a lot of competition and it just made a really bad atmosphere for collaboration. That's where Gigi Dolinga comes in and was like just breaking down walls metaphorically and physically getting people rotated around in the factory and out in the team so they could understand the problems, start listening to the writer feedback. And it was 
obviously it's 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 changed the team for the better so i don't think any of that is casey i think casey's sitting there going like hey i can't feel the front and preziosi's being like okay well i think it's this and everyone be like yeah 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 yeah. that's it that's gotta be that let's do that and casey coming back and being like hey guys like it's still doing this and they're like no 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 no, no. Like, it'll be fine it'll be fine we'll just we'll just tweak this and yeah, i don't know i disagree we'll see i think there's absolutely 50 percent of it easily if not more is the ducati thing and in knowing the culture at ducati Hell yeah, I agree. But there's there's a little bit of little stoner blame there. So I'm going to lay it on there. But let's talk about Jorge relative to this. Is that will he be able to 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 meld well? Obviously, with with Gigi being in the at the helm, it's got to be way well, better than the situation that Rossi came oh, into sure. there, right? For sure. And and I think you have to remember too like Gigi and Jorge have a long relationship from from when Jorge used to race for Aprilia. So it's not like they don't, they haven't worked together. It's not like they don't know each other. And I think that there's been some comments in the press too that 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 part of that relationship has played a a factor. Sure. And the other thing you have to remember too, I think think we'll see Ducati keep Andrea Davizioso around. You think so? I think so. And for the reason like you stated, Lorenzo's a great rider. I don't know how highly rated he is as a development rider. Obviously, he's very fast and his input's going to be very good, but there's definitely. You know, I talk to these guys on a semi-regular basis. There's some riders where, like, you ask them a technical question and you get an engineering manual back in the in the description. And there's other guys you ask them the questions and it's like, oh, the bike felt good. This felt good. That felt bad. Andrea Davizioso is a, an engineering manual guy. He's one of those guys I think fundamentally understands the vehicle dynamics that go into a motorcycle that can tell you, like, no, this is a suspension problem versus this is a chassis problem or this is a, a tire issue versus this is an electronics issue or this is, you yeah, know, sure. well, well, is what needs to be done, deal. which is a huge thing. And I think there's a lot of value there. And I think that's probably the argument on why he would stay at Ducati Corsa over Andre Iannone, who Iannone is like the wild card. Like maybe we could win a race with him or maybe we could win a championship if things go right. Well, maybe if he just matured a little bit more and was more consistent, like he has a lot of raw talent. I don't think he'll ever win a championship. I don't think that'll ever come around. I think he'll always be a he'll be one of those guys like like Pedrosa, I think, who was yeah. a great example where like he's gonna threaten some races. He's gonna be in the hunt every now and then if he matures and takes it to the next level. But it, the he's plateauing. And I think Ducati can see that and be like, Well, you know, maybe you're a good number two rider, but we need a number one rider and we need a development rider because our bike's not done yet but we want to win some championships and we're making an investment because it's a two year contract with Jorge. So, you know, it'll be, it'll be a building year and then it'll be a winning year. I think. How much of it do you think is the psychology of going to Ducati, um, to try and one up Rossi? I don't think you can discount that at all. I think I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that's the motivation. I wouldn't say that's the reason, but like, Man, that's such that's like just piling on like extra icing on the cake. Like if he can go to Ducati and be like, look what I did that you couldn't do. Granted, completely different teams, yeah, completely sure. different bikes and, sure. and like unfair comparison to make like historically. But like I wouldn't be surprised if like Jorge just sent like Valentino a text in like twenty eighteen after he was won the championship, like, huh. <laughs> look what I did. Mm-hmm. Cuddles from Spain. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. Like, I mean, all these writers have huge egos, every single one of them. And it's how they manage that ego differently that, that makes them different. Um, but I can, I mean, that totally feeds into it. That totally, that totally feeds into it. Well, there we have Lorenzo to Ducati in a nutshell. Is there any 
Any extra thing you want to point out about it, or is there anything more to it? I don't think so. No, I'm good. Okay. Uh, we did have a listener question. Yes, let's read it. Let me find it. This email comes from Dan Withers, Esquire, attorney at law. What does Esquire mean? Other than a magazine? Like you want like the, yeah. Um, how far, how, how much of an explanation do you want? Uh, never mind. You want like the bridge version? The bridge version is like an Esquire is someone that, that, that is legally trained and has a law degree. Okay. That's all I have. You say. can, you generally, it means it's someone that's passed the bar exam and is licensed ah. to practice law. But like I would say it's very much a Venn diagram. You can be an Esquire and not be an attorney at law, or I should say you can be an Esquire and not have the bar exam. Hmm. You can't be an attorney at law without the bar exam, but they pretty much use interchangeably. Like when you get down to like colloquial vernacular speech, they're one and the same. Okay. I would never hold myself out as like Johnson Beeler, Esquire. Cause I just one, yeah. it sounds like a, like a, I'm just like a prick. Pret- pretentious. Yeah. Just a pretentious prick. And two, it's just kind of misleading and like, I don't know. I blog for a living. Come on. Yeah. It's just nah. Right. Nah. If but you- I, I totally get mail from, from, from my alma mater. Jensen Beeler Esquire. I'm like, oh, you guys are looking for money. That one's going in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you got this email from Esquire. From 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 Dan. our listener, Dan Withers. Who's who's written us before, by the way? Has he? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'm just going to read it. Guys, your show is fantastic for several reasons, not the least of which is the... Re- okay, this is just... Yeah, blow, we don't need... Blowjob, 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 blowjob. Quentin, a question for you, sir. I love how he writes that. Everyone says my beloved Aprilia RF has a sweet frame. It, yeah, name dropper. It's also frequently said that the Suzuki Moto GP bike has, quote, the sweetest frame in the paddock, unquote. But what really makes a sweet a sweet frame sweet is in suspension 90% of handling, question mark, if the torquing and flexing of the bike, along with pure lateral movement on the track, is the exclusive dominion of the frame as opposed to suspension, then how precisely is... Frame style A, so much different than frame style B. Kickstands, ah, fuck it, Dan. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Thanks for wasting three years of your life in law school, too. (laughs) Welcome to the club, buddy. Well, I think there's, I don't know why that would be just directed to me. I mean, you you have enough knowledge of what what goes on, the travails of MotoGP bikes to have a a quasi-understanding of chassis dynamics, right? But I'll say from my... This is not a black or white question. You know, there's not a, there's not an easy, quick, simple answer. I bet, That's why the question is being asked, yeah, right? I bet there are a dozen people in this world that could definitively tell you the differences and why they're better. And I think everyone else is just puppeting or parroting what they would say, or what they think they would say. Yeah. Like I think this is this is one of those like dark art mysteries. Like you need to really know your shit, and this is you're probably making like six, like high six figures because of it. Sitting in a factory somewhere, making some magic happen, and everyone else is just like an amateur to your professional, right? And the 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 person that can that could define this has done a lot of finite element analysis, and there are like Cray supercomputers and or whatever the equivalent new that have done that analysis on hundreds of chassis, right? It's so complex, but we'll just take. Uh, Current technology, most aluminum frames, right? That's what we've been dealing with since the eighties. Aluminum, well, if, yeah. If I extrusions had extrusions welded to to cast pieces that hold an engine, 
and most of them are not stressed members. That frame functions without the engine in place, and the engine doesn't doesn't have and much say in what happens with the frame. Right? When you when you say that, you mean you're you're talking about all motorcycles, not like just sport bikes. Yeah, I'm just saying. And now I'm 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 saying let's call it sport bikes. Yeah. Okay. So from the 80s on, that was about when Honda started using. Yamaha started using the Delta box. The big change was when the twin spar aluminum frame. Twin spar around the outside of the engines. And most of them, let's face it, were inline four cylinder Japanese bikes, right? That was it. Ducati was still doing chrome tube frames up until three years ago, right? So Ducati kept on with a, a tube frame, KTM tube frame, even to this day, a lot of tube frames. Yep. KTM cites their understanding of steel. Trellis frames is one of their core competencies. Yeah, and you know Ducati for a long time as well. Whatever, uh, Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, Kawasaki. Suzuki was the last of the manufacturers to adopt the perimeter frame in the mid '90s. They they actually had a they went from the oil air cooled engines to the water cooled and still had the we call it a cradle frame where the frame goes underneath and above. Um, and they still had some success with that, but it, that bike at that time in 95, 96, 95 was still, well, that was way behind the times. And then when they came out with the uh, GSX-R750 SRAD, everybody calls them the SRADs. SRADs. Right? But that was the bulbous, <laughs> tailed, very revolutionary bike at the time, right? And that uh, that had the, the, the twin spar frame. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't immediately successful. In fact, it, it needed a lot of tweaking to make work, probably for these very reasons. But it's not just the frame. It's engine. It's placement of engine, it's center of gravity, it's pickup points for the for the steering head. Like, where's the steering head? It's not just rake and trail, but where is the steering head located on the bike? How far up f- does the rake and trail start? Where where is this thing's happening? Like, you, it's it's there's so many things going on. How long is the swing arm? Where is the swing arm pickup point? Where is the swing arm pickup point relative to the counter shaft? Well, Wa- then you get into what kind of linkage. Well, sure. No, the, yeah, the counter shaft holes. alone, just just the counter shaft. We could have, you could write a dissertation on chain pull and how it affects handling, because the sprocket on most motorcycles is not concentric with the swing arm pivot. So then there's a an effect, right? And then you'd have shit. Some of the guys I worked with, part of the chassis handling for any given track was getting the gearing correct so that the torque interaction from the front sprocket was properly matched to the swing arm pivot. So it wasn't just, I'm running this gearing, it's what's that gearing with the right sprocket sizes to get the balance of chain pull and swing arm angle and length of length of bike wheelbase, because it changes the wheelbase when you change the chain. So there's, there's so many, that's like, it's, it starts, you, you have to drill down into all these different aspects of it. So watching MotoGP bikes for the past 10 years, we've seen these frames, especially on the Yamaha. If you look at the Yamahas, it's interesting to watch the frame kind of melt down on top of the engine. It kind of just kind of, you'll, you'll see that the, the frame spars melt down way far and have pickup points really low on the engine. It's just, why? Well, there's flex in there and the, the way that they tune that. That's part of it. Is the, do the forks isolate that? No. How how do you? What do you do when it, when a bike is at lean? And that's the the thing that I'd want to talk to the engineer about is trying mm-hmm. to understand. Well, and that's and that's too. I think that's where Dan's going with his question because he's talking about how why does a chassis matter? Isn't it suspension? Well, 
Think about a motorcycle when it's leaned over. When you know, in MotoGP, it's 60 plus degrees. Well, the way the physics work when the with the forks, you're not getting as much suspension work out of the, the fork moving inside the tube back and forth. You're getting a lot more... Oh, um, I'm trying to figure out how I can describe this. Of the wheel pivoting off of the steering head. Well, or, uh, the, the off wheel, of the mass. The, the, yeah, because you're going to get the fork tube flexing, and then the, the frame and the chassis itself has flex into You have to think of the motorcycle as a whole as this one big lever that's that's being flexed to, to get the grip while the bike's leaned With over. With 150 to 170 pound human hanging off of it. So right. you forget that that's a huge part. The largest single right. thing that varies on a motorcycle is the human being riding on, right? So it, it where you're putting your weight. So if you think of where the, the points are that you're grabbing, the handlebars and the, uh, and the uh, uh, foot pegs, well, that's where the, a lot of the weight is going, and in a lot of cases, sometimes the fuel tank. You're just extending that lever out, sure. so it's going pretty far from the point of your center of gravity on your chest all the way to the axle, or all, all the way to the to the point on the, where the tire is contacting the ground. Right. Well, yeah, there's that, but I'm thinking more of of I guess the bowing of the chassis as it goes through a turn. Yeah. And that was a huge thing that we, or at least it was a big point of conjecture with the the Desmo Sedici when. Um, they were showing kind of like the the frameless design because the engine was such a, a large part of the chassis that some of the conjecture was, well, okay, well the engine's so rigid and stiff because it has to be. The castings are so big and they have to yep. they have to stay true for the cylinder to go up and down. And da 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 da. So and the reality was you had this tiny lever at the front, which was the airbox uh, headstock kind of contraption where the forks would come to, and you had this tiny lever in the back that was the swing arm. And and you basically took away like almost fifty percent of the bike being a lever, and it was it was too stiff, it was too rigid. That was the conjecture, at least, and that's what they were talking about with Ducati's chassis design. The same issue was kind of true with the carbon fiber frame, where you know maybe they're saying it was too stiff or or not stiff enough. I mean, carbon fiber is an interesting material to work with for a chassis, just because right. it's it's um, it's it's not a material that lends itself to to, to flexing. It, it, it's a very good at being rigid, and metal is very good at flexing and and, and Spring, retaining springing springing. Right. Thank you. If you flexes and yields and it doesn't, right? That's bad. But right. if you can go back to shape, which is something that chromoly steel does exceptionally well, titanium does exceptionally right. well. Right. Well, and that was just if I can finish my point real quick. Before the carbon fiber frame, we had the trellis frame, and I remember Casey Stoner talking about how like. He could get quote unquote identical trellis frames from the factory and they would behave completely different on the track because there wasn't enough consistency in the chassis design from Ducati. Now you can either say that's that's Casey being hypersensitive to small variations, or you can say that's Ducati not being uh, as strong with their quality control on, on these hand built frames that are probably being built in a, some sort of jig. Or you could say that was the 2007 World Championship. There's that too. That's what I'd say. Um, so that the, that was where you see a failure start, not failure, but that's where the it's kind of went off the tracks. So, like, all right, here's carbon fiber time, 800 cc carbon fiber time, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, um, yeah, the 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 word was that they could tune flex into the carbon, which you could depending on how you stack the weave and and it's build a, the. I, I don't. I agree with that. It's got to be difficult yeah. to do, but it's I've worked doable. a lot with I've worked a lot with composites for my sailing years and like. I mean, there's so much into it. There's so much into it, and I've and I've talked to the America's Cup guys a lot that that work with a lot of Comfort because usually those teams do their own, sure, a lot of their own work. They they bring sure. it all in house because it's such a black box. Like this is where the magic happens, kind of thing. 
and like all I can say is it is such a different core competency to go from to go from being really good at making steel trellis frames to being really good at making carbon fiber chains. Like it's night and day. It's such a night and day. And you can sit there and do all the finite element analysis you want, but like, you know, you get that weave, you know, you're doing overlapping layers of carbon fiber. You get that weave 10 degrees off, five degrees, three degrees off. Like you are drastically changing the dynamics that are at play with that that component when it's when it's finally laid up and dried and ready to go and it's just man you know this is what this is what formula one teams just spend millions of dollars on millions that aerodynamics from the i think the first carbon fiber chassis for a formula one car was 79 or 80 a lot of people don't realize that same with the on the motorcycle side Uh, do, do yourselves a favor google nr500 honda nr500 carbon and you'll see the first carbon frame it'll freak you out because it's a it's not a good use of carbon fiber as we know now. Carbon fiber is best used in large, wide swaths, right? Big, laid out. That's where the structure can be utilized the best and it's easiest to manufacture. These wheels that have spokes and lots of compound curves and whatnot, very bad well, deal. Yeah, I would say yes in the general sense, but like we've gotten weave. Well, I don't know who I'm including in that conversation. No, but weave, carbon fiber we've weave. gotten. I got my weave on, girl. Um, not, I'm too white for that. Yep. Not not going to work. Um, but I would say like the, the, the technology has progressed in such an interesting way of carbon fiber. Like before, like we literally were laying up sheets of carbon fiber, pre-prag, you know, yep. cooking it in a... In a, not an oven, an but oven, an autoclave. An autoclave, thank you. Yeah. I don't know why I couldn't figure that word out. I'm running out of do. I got to load up. But um, <laughs> you know, we're we're we've evolved from that. And now, like you know, Lexus has this great thing with the LFA. They were showing how they do the carbon fiber chassis for that, and it's literally I don't even know how to describe this thing. It's the it's a giant machine that takes each singular strand of the carbon fiber strands. That's spools. Spools. They're on Thank spools. Yeah. And they just kind of come together and it weaves it as it goes into the shape necessary. It's you gotta I just Google carbon fiber LFA, Lexus LFA. I'll have to look at that. That'd be it interesting. Is, it is fascinating. And it's interesting to watch them. They're they're basically laying carbon fiber in 3D. It is super sophisticated. And and this technology is progressing on a regular basis. And and there's carbon fiber and then there's carbon composites and Carbon and that's and in the bicycle realm. You'll see a lot of bikes that they don't look like carbon fiber. Like they don't have that weird, the, or it's not the weird, the normal weave pattern. Right. They just have that carbon like graphite look. Right. And that I don't pretend, I have never actually watched that stuff get made. Probably have to see a, a TV show because it's it's ubiquitous now. Yeah. Right. Thousands of bicycle frames are made that way. But what you're talking about is like same thing that uh, uh, Britain John Britton was doing this in like the late 80s. This was one of the things that made his bikes, his wheels, his frames so amazing was that he was doing this. At a very much more rudimentary level, but yeah. But he was doing it. Because right? he was kind of before before kind of people were laying in, laying it into molds and doing things like that. He was doing it by hand, which there's no way, like that's like the Diet Coke version because you're going to have so much more resin and, and waste yeah, and like sure. it's not going to be as light as it could be but it's you know at that time obviously revolutionary and, and and very much on the cutting edge of design so it's just interesting to watch it evolve and i'd be very interested with what ducati knows now and what we know now in carbon fiber and there's obviously like they have they have access to audi which is you know a large enough company that's playing around with the very razor's edge version of this 
I wonder what they could build now if they wanted to build a carbon fiber chassis. I think they could do it a lot better. But that being said, they've got their working system. They're using a perimeter style frame. Aluminum. And they have aluminum and people. And it's one of those things like I think it comes back to your racing teams being so conservative. And you go back to what you know. There are so many guys out there now that know how to make a good aluminum perimeter twin spar frame that you know like that's not going to be the weak link in the bike. Like if your bike's not going fast, it's not because of my frame. It's something else. And it may not be like the best and it may not be like the 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 competitive advantage you're looking for because everyone else has it, but you know it's not the problem. And that's where race teams go to. Like they try I feel like race teams are always looking for a reasons for not to blame why they lost. It's like, okay, well, we know it's not the frame. Well, we know it's not the tires. Well, we know it's not the engine. So it's gotta be the rider. Or hey, like, hey, we've got Jorge Lorenzo on this bike. If it's not winning, it's not because of him it's because of the bikes we got to figure out what it is well this goes to the uh, interestingly back to our conversation we were having about jorge and rossi and frames and strangely similar so i had got to meet the guy that was the chief chassis designer guy at ducati just from my ducati connections right and he had moved on to a different part of ducati and i got to have lunch brunch breakfast with him one time um and got to you know do my normal question wilson uh routine with him because i asked way too many questions (laughs) so we i i i drilled into him a little bit and he was remarkably forthright um probably because i was a ducati employee yeah in the club yeah discussing this this thing so we we brought up the rossi the, the the going from carbon to aluminum and how it got there and he laid the blame squarely on the politics of Rossi. And he said that we, we, they absolutely could have had the same effect if they would have continued iterating on the carbon chassis. Not saying it would have been exactly the same, but his belief was that because the engine had been desi- designed solely to work with a, 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 a carbon a carbon frame in a very specific way that wrapping the aluminum around just started to, it convoluted it obviously works. It works okay, but it's been years, right? Cause remember the initial aluminum chassis, whether that was 2011 or 12 for Rossi, it, it didn't do much. It, it didn't do anything. In fact, it did fuck all. So that took iterating on it. Same type of iterations. Like, okay, once you get to a certain amount, you'll get some success after so much testing. So that was, that was his view of what had gone on, is that the politics, especially going right to your Preziosi era issues, Ducati issues. Think about this. This was right when a Audi was about to buy them. There was a lot of strange things going on there, too. Uh, Del Torquio. Del Torquio is just pumping. He was you know, really doing you're, you're a big just, job. You're there just trying to that. sell that thing. Yeah, you're trying I, to get your numbers as high as you can and sell it so high and get out. Don't discount Rossi being at Ducati for the sole purpose of Audi buying it. Like it was a big deal for all that know. going on at once. I don't right? know if I would say that, but but for sure it, it helped. I would look at it from the other perspective, and, and this kind of comes back to what we said. Um, we said it actually on the Paddock Pass show, so my apologies for for cross showing you here, um, but the one we just did in Austin. But you know, look at—I'll give you a modern example and use it as a way to describe what was going on with Rossi. Look at like the Suzuki X Star, the X Star, sorry, the X Star Suzuki team. The title sponsor is X Star, which is Suzuki's in-house oil. 
The I didn't even know that. Yeah. I, I just assumed it was some Euro oil that we couldn't get our hands on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, it, so it kind sad. of is. Cause I don't think you can show up at most yeah. of the Suzuki dealers and yeah. find it, but maybe that's changing. I don't know. I don't walk into a lot of Suzuki dealers lately. I don't have a Suzuki anymore. Um, but the whole point is like, okay, so like they could have done what Yamaha does. Movie star Yamaha. Movie star is uh, a telecommunications company out of Spain. They probably paid four to $10 million for the rights to be, uh, on that bike. I can totally hear that. <laughs> uh, they paid four to $10 million to, to have the rights to be on the side of the Yamaha racing team. They're also like a special Dorna partner. If you actually, you watch any press conference on the Dorna live feed, the first question always goes to the movie star girl. Yeah, sure. She sits right next to, um, Nick Harris. And it's like, and hey, is there any questions from the floor? Oh, one right next to me. How interesting that is. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's fine. That's politics. But, you know, so that's four, 10 million. And that's, you know, let's that's say, not, I don't think that's politics. That was business. That's business. Yes, yeah. you're right. Well, <laughs> I think in Spain, business and politics are yeah. intertwined. <laughs> Zinger. Yeah. Um, Europe. Europe. Oh, silly bastards. Sorry. Sorry. I totally just fucked you up there. I, I, I really, yeah, I'm trying to think where it was. What was I talking about? Okay, so yeah, so that's that that's that's roughly that that deal's worth roughly ten to twenty five percent of of Yamaha's budget. It's it's paying some of the bills, but not a lot. Look at Suzuki, what they're doing with X Star, and you know that's that's something that's much larger. You know, so they're they're saying, hey, I'm going to forego the five million dollars or whatever our title sponsorship is worth. Instead, we're going to use our MotoGP team as a way to market this oil that you've never heard of and i've never heard of and that will be in every suzuki dealership around the world and we can use this as a as a marketing program for that and that fits into our larger marketing scheme for sport bikes and selling jixers and and that goes into a larger thing of of selling suzuki as a brand for motorcycles which goes into a larger thing of selling suzuki as a japanese corporation that makes you know a bunch of other things outside of the motorcycle industry that's way cool and cars and i mean you get into like what Kawasaki, Honda, Yamaha, and Suzuki make outside of motorcycles, and you realize that like their power sports business is a drop in the bucket. Oh, you're just talking about Kawasaki. Kawasaki. I mean, I mean that's not even has nothing. Motorcycles is like not even nothing, right? And then Kawasaki and the, Evan Industries makes ships, right? They make the crankshaft for the ships. That's so. I mean, they make yeah, they literally make the stuff. And and, and in a lot of way, their motorcycle divisions is where they go to brack. And that's yeah, why Suzuki yeah. is Halo products. Is, right? That's why the Suzuki Eight Hour is such a big deal because it's like it's like Kawasaki bragging in front of Yamaha or Honda, and being like, "Look how much better we are you on the racetrack." That means we build ships better than you. That like eight billion dollar oil tanker we just made is better than your ten billion dollar oil tanker because our MotoGP team is kicking your ass. So I just say that, and like for Suzuki, that's how they approach their team, and I think for. Ducati and the Rossi era, like there was so much going into that. It wasn't just about like, okay, we're going to pay $15 million to have Rossi on our team and maybe he's going to win us a championship and all that. It was about selling more Ducatis and selling gear and, and, and getting the, I'm going to use a stupid business word, synergy between the Rossi brand and the Ducati brand. And like, look how much press that generated. I can remember oh, the dude. day that deal went down. I mean, I honest to God, I think asphalt and rubbers, like, like pivot point, like our, our like the point where we're like like we hit critical mass was when we published we published one of the first stories about Rossi going to Ducati. I got very lucky in getting a great source on that, someone that was inside the deal and knew it. And you know, you just watched our traffic double overnight. 
you know, we went from just some tiny blog to our play. Like, oh, that, that's the definitive point. If I had to go back in time and say, like, when did Asphalt and Rubber become, like, legitimate in the motorcycle industry? That was it right there hmm. when we hit that story. And, like, and you look at, I think you made up a great point with, like, Del Torquio on Audi. Like, you know, Rossi going to Ducati for MotoGP was just one piece in a yeah. much larger puzzle. And you have to look at it in that way. Um, and that's how some of this is. And I think Lorenzo's like that in a way, too. Like, this is, you know. Ducati trying to get its racing cred back. And it's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get us our top rider. We're going to go out and buy the best rider in the paddock. And we're going to throw everything we have at this. And I think Diminicali being from the racing department, yeah. being such a, yeah. a track-minded, racing-minded sort of guy, like this is this is how we're going to, I wasn't going to say win back the Ducati brand, but we're going to run the Ducati flag up the flagpole real high this time. And this is a way for us to legitimize all the crazy shit that we're selling out there. We got an, the guy has an adventure bike now. They have two cruisers. They've got a scrambler. You know, there's a whole mess of bikes that aren't Ducati sport bikes, as you would think of them 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Maybe 10, maybe even 10 years ago. Nope. The sure. brand has evolved a lot in the last decade. And maybe this is a way for them to say, like, you know, when they, when they can hang another, you know, MotoGP championship went up on the wall for them to say like hey we're still that brand you know like loyal ducatisti from you know the last couple decades like we're still your brand like don't worry even though the the thousand cc sport my market is not so great right then yeah, yeah that's the way to do it for sure it's halo and a lot of people use that word i know it's a that's a cheesy business term like synergy but it's a halo deal right like look how awesome this is we don't really have to do this for our but well, we're, we're going to do it because we need to have that I think, icing on the cake. I think the more, the, the, the savvier brands view MotoGP and racing as a whole as part of something larger than it is. Beyond just marketing, beyond just advertising, beyond just like, hey, this helps sell race on Sunday, sell on Monday. Well, and Ferrari is a good example of that in a weird way because they don't really sell more cars, I don't think, because of their Formula One team. They they're already they already just basically only make a certain amount of cars and you know they curate it out to the whatever markets they want. That Ferrari that that's a juggernaut in and of itself. The Formula like, One racing is its own deal. I feel like Ferrari is the Harley Davidson of the auto industry, where it's just <laughs> yeah. it's its own thing. The yeah. Ferrari is a company that does X and happens to also sell cars. Yeah, Harley Davidson's yeah. a company that does Y and happens to sell motorcycles. And X and Y are probably pretty similar in this equation. Harley puts the Y and Y. Why did I buy this bike? <laughs> Why does it not All work? All right, dude. We just, there was the rabbit hole. We got to come back. Right. So meanwhile, motorcycle frames, frames, frames right? um, but so, that this all goes to that, right? All of that conversation, even though we went a little bit far off, that goes into what makes these frames good. All right. Well, I'll go to the Moto Sys time. Well, can I interject? Cause I got one, I got one more Moto GP thing okay. that's yeah. related and then we'll go Moto Sys. Okay. Just so we can finish it up. There's an interesting thing. I remember, oh, I'm totally mucking up who said it. It was like a Kenny Roberts senior or. Some of that nature, they were talking about the the Suzuki GSXR R, the the MotoGP bike that Alation Maverick are on, and they were saying like, oh, everyone's like, oh, the chassis is so good, the chassis is so good, oh, it's so great. Too bad the engine's not more powerful. And it's like, well, yeah, they haven't, they haven't, they haven't gotten the horsepower up. Like, there's going to be this point where yeah. the bike, 
the horsepower of the bike is going to outperform the chassis It'll on the bike. It'll tie the thing in knots. Yeah. And then you're going to have to reevaluate the chassis, and then you're going to have to go, like, there's, like, this kind of a yeah, step back and forth of, of, of developing the chassis and then developing the engine and then developing the chassis to meet the engine and then developing the engine more. Yeah, and it's then, a slippery slope to call, oh, that bike, man, it handles really well. Right. You hear this about slow bikes right. very often. Well, I just Very remember, often. This is a common joke within the paddock. Right. Oh, yeah, that, hand, that bike handles really well because it doesn't have the horsepower. Then there's also the, boy, that bike really pulls out out of the corners, man. That bike, it pulls so hard out of the corners. Yeah, because it doesn't have a fucking top end, right? And <laughs> all it does is pull out of the corner and then, yeah. then you're left with kind of like this, right? So that's an unfortunate joke and you hear it inside the paddock for the people that are in the know. Oh yeah, that bike pulls real hard. On, and boy, does it have a sweet hand on the chassis. Yeah. Just can't win races, right? <laughs> and that was and that was the line basically because whoever it was, let's say it's, let's say it was King Kenny, and they were saying like, oh, the chassis is so good. And, that's, and he was like, yeah, that's because they haven't ruined it yet. Hmm. They haven't built the motor up yet. Yeah, you know. So yeah, um, it all goes. It all just it's just so. It's it's like carbon fiber all woven together, all these different parts. So you can't just say the suspension's more important, the, the front forks are more important than the rear shocks more important than the swing arm stiffness is more important. No, they're all there. It's a system. And and that system has to work yeah. perfectly uh in in harmony with a bunch of other factors including the riders where the where the fuel is kept in the frame how much weight distribution what the where the crankshaft is relative to the output shaft relative to the you know all these different things are all working together right i think the disconnect is is like when we get to when we get to race day and they're talking like oh we're having trouble at turn three or we're having trouble down the front straight the team's the solution is like, oh, well, we, we changed this suspension setting. We changed this electronic thing. Like, and we look at those as being more valuable than the chassis setup. But the, I think the issue comes down to those are the things you can change day of. You know, you've got a lot of adjustability in suspension. You've got a lot of adjustability in electronics. You don't have a lot in chassis. You know, you might have a swing arm pivot adjustment. You might be able to have a headstock adjustment. You might be able to change kind of like where the seat is and the handlebars. But you know, like it's not like you're going to sit there in the back of the paddock, you know, after FP1 and be like, oh, I'm going to redesign this uh, this frame here. I'm going to move that spar down there and then I'm going to make it kind of curt. No, it's well, like you, that's that's a lot of R&D that, that, takes, that takes a longer, I was going to say gestation it, cycle. It but. could, it, and it did for the longest time. And it would now, especially if you've got too many bean countery type of people. But man, back in the day, we're talking not that far, even just 15 years ago. Um, a good example would be Team Graves Yamaha when they had an R7, R1 based, it was a Formula Extreme bike. It was right. a Yamaha right. that was an amalgamation of the Yamaha R1 and R7. Party in the front, business in the back. Man, and that, the changes that they were going through. And yeah, they were getting some help from Yamaha, but a lot of it was just, just weld this here. Take that away. Uh, take it. Right, build it up here. Put this part of the frame on here. Put that part of the frame on there. It's amazing, right? Okay, but my question to you is: so when you guys were working on that Franken bike, how many how many different chassis did you have at the track with? Well, you no, no, no. Time? and this uh, this was before my time. But they would have 
testing multiple chassis and they would have to do that and they'd have to do it in, during the season in sometimes it would have to be show up to the racetrack with a completely different bike that they had from the last weekend i can get and, that but then but i'm just saying like you don't see like no yeah you don't tough. you don't walk into the pit box and see like 12 chassis on the on the wall and be like okay we're gonna go with number three today for this a, session the b the c the no all right the you come out with what you got and you and you develop off of that and then maybe next race you need something new because or what, seasonally there will be a change sure. or all of a sudden you'll have a bunch of frames in the shop and you're told to swap them sure and you don't have any reason other than that's oh uh, they you've lifed that frame out so you just swapped it and bullshit that frame was different and we get them from wherever so there's there's some shit going on there but you're right most chassis most teams don't have that ability right so you are dealing with a a, a thing and that's your building block. So you've got the engine. That's not going to change a lot, especially if you're, say, racing super stock. Or, or MotoGP now, where your, your engines are allocated before the there season. There it is. And so you have to. There's done. your lump. And I don't know. I don't know how the rules work, but uh, could they change a frame every weekend if they wanted to? Oh, they can change a frame. Yeah, they could do they it can all change the a frame all they right? want. I just, my point is just that that's such a, like, one there's like a, there's there's like a space element to it. You can only bring so many of these yeah, things with sure. you. And two, it's like there's certain adjustability built into each frame. And you know you might get like Ducati had this problem. Like you know they were making their frames with all sorts of adjustment because they were still looking for that that sweet spot. But you know you have to have that frame that's capable of that. And then two, you kind of get to like let's say like you're trying to make the bike longer. Eventually you're gonna run out of out of space playing your swing arm or playing your your headstock or whatever. Like okay, we've made this bike as long as we can with this frame. We just need a new frame. And it's not like you're going to be in the back of the pit box, like welding up a new one. Like that's something that has to come from the factory and be developed. And it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Whereas like day of the race, it's like, Hey, I'm having a little head shake coming here. Like, well, it's okay. Well, I can do a couple clicks on the suspension. We'll do a little, I'll type on my keyboard and do something on the electronics. Like that's the stuff we can deal with. That's right in front of us today. And then maybe tomorrow we can have, or next week we can have that, that new swing arm you need or that new, headstock you need or that new frame you need or whatever it is yeah i'd say that's true but they can they can do more than you think and i i think they do more than you think uh, a lot necessity I, is I, the I mother saw, of all inventions i saw i saw it happening with very stock type of racing in the united states i saw it very clearly if, if a factory wants if, if you're selling I don't know, 10,000 R6s a year and uh, 8,000 R1s a year or 20,000 GSXRs a year, you're going to you're gonna pay real close attention to how you're marketing and your biggest marketing thing is how you're doing on the racetrack. Say when the economy was good and racing was healthy in the U.S., huge deal. So I can just imagine what it's like on the MotoGP scale, right? But you're not saying that like like teams, teams were cheating. Were nope, you? no cheating. All right. Never. All racing is legit. Absolutely. Sure. But that was the cool thing about like the Formula Extreme level where the, they could just screw around with just all tweak kinds and of tweak stuff. And tweak. It was, it had to be a certain CC size and it had to have two wheels. Right. And that, I love that type of racing. The Formula USA early, early nineties where it was two strokes, two stroke 500s lining up against methanol burning GSXR 1100s. That's amazing to me. I've probably, we've talked about it on the podcast before. I'm pretty sure that type of racing is awesome. And that just lends itself to all kinds of weirdo chassis. Somebody was ringing up recently though, and back to the chassis thing that how sad it was that no, there are no innovations in chassis design. It's all, you know, telescopic forks going to a, a frame and an engine that has a, a swing arm at the back. And that's that. And they thought that Moto2 
was going to allow for more weirdo chassis right. stuff. That was the hope. And it didn't even come close. No. It was just right to a, a very specific style of frame, engine, fork relationship. And the only people that have tried, there's been a couple. There was a Japanese company that did, and uh, Brof Superior, uh, my old friend Paul Taylor, uh, tried with a monocoque carbon bike, and again, that's that's Vi- virus tried with the uh, yep. hub center steering. Yep, love and that bike. Great oh, stuff, man. but again, right? Yeah, it's the the simplest solution to the problem is is most likely the one that's Occam's razor, and that's yeah. what telescopic well, front ends are. Well, yeah, I, I talked. I had a great conversation. I have the audio somewhere. It's 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 buried and way too long for the show. But I had a great conversation with Mark Taylor from FTR Moto, and this was right at the start of. Uh, the Moto Two Championships. So it was right that's around. A, that's a company that was making aluminum frames for Ducati. Yeah, they made the uh, they made that that aluminum perimeter frame for Ducati, and yep. I don't think that was something that was supposed no. to be publicized and it's not widely known. They were one of the um, the first chassis builders for Moto Two, and I remember talking to Mark about the conservative nature of, of racing teams because because it was right at this time when we were saying like, hey, why aren't we seeing more more crazy designs? And there was still five or six fairly major chassis manufacturers in the series. And now we look at it and basically everyone's on a Calyx. If you're not on a Calyx frame right now in Moto2, you're probably in the back of the grid. So Suter isn't? Suter is out. Really? Uh, Speed up is not good? Uh, no. Everyone's on a Calyx. And it, and it's and it, again, it's one of those things where it's like, hey guys, why are we losing? Well, the, the team in first and the team in second are on a Calyx and we're in third and we're on a different brand. Maybe that's the reason because we don't want to think it's our rider. We don't want to think it's our team. Let's just blame it on the chassis. So next year they run a Calyx and maybe they go up in the order. Maybe they go down the order. Maybe they stay the same. You know, who who really knows? But it, he was telling me an anecdote on uh, this intake design because if you remember the FTR bikes, they had just this very, it was a circle. It was just a circle for an intake. And it was yeah. kind of ugly. Yep. And the other teams had, you know, there's different designs. And he was sitting there and he's like showing me the, solid works or whatever i'm sure they're using something more sophisticated than solid works but they're basically showing me the 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 aerodynamical computations and he's like this design here's the design we're using here's the design they're using let's put them together and you can like you can just look at the computer model and how much more efficient his circle design was like he's like this is just the math of it this is just aerodynamics 101 this is better than this design that this other company is using, which is basically a riff on what Honda uses now, where you kind of have that like a uh, whale shark the kind whale of shark working open, mouth. The and, open maw. Right. But he was saying like, but my design's ugly and theirs looks pretty good. And we had actually one, of, like he was saying like one of the teams came up and was like, hey, can you make this look better? Because we're having a hard time getting sponsors with an ugly bike. Even though he's like, this flows like, mm, you know, 7% more air. <laughs> and, you know, when you're looking yeah, at like it, it's a significant amount. And, and then right? like when you're looking at a, a spec engine class, like pretty much the only way you're going to get more more horsepower than the other guy is to shove more air into yeah. the, the combustion chamber. So there's more fuel going in and getting a bigger bang and, yep. and doing your thing. Like that's one of your only competitive advantages to, to go fast on the racetrack. But no, the pushback was like, hey, we're having a hard time getting a sponsor. Can you make this look We don't like better? your your pie hole, your, right. your bike's pie hole. Right. And then and then looking at like, you know, like, well, you know, we have I mean, how many years of of information and data? Like when you start thinking about like MotoGP as a data acquisition project and 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 I can't and fathom the knowledge that is based on just like years and years and years of building telescopic forks and traditional suspension and chassis design like like 
we have we have hit the the very tip of that pinnacle of knowledge. We've we've exhausted. We know everything about it in this way. Whereas you look at like hub center steering design, we maybe only know. I'm just quantifying the most vaguest of terms, but we only maybe know like 25 percent of of what we need to know about hub center designs. And maybe if we knew 100 or or what we know in standard chassis designs, it would be superior. It could be 20, 30 percent more superior. But the the progress to get from point A to point B on that is such a wide gap to cross that would mean like. 10 seasons of competitive racing and no team can afford that because most of these privateer teams, most of these Moto2 teams, I mean, it's just all shoestring, man. These aren't like professional chassis developing teams. They got like a data guy and they got a chassis guy and they got some mechanics and, you know, they've got a couple riders and a team boss and they're just kind of like, hey, we need to get eight sponsors this year or we don't have a racing program. It's not like it's like HRC where there's like there's some factory in the back that's just cranking these out. And even like outfits like FTR, they don't have the budget to kind of sit there and do that and then be like, hey, by the way, so I've got this crazy new, you know, chassis design that we think is better, but you're going to probably need a rider who knows how to ride it because every rider that's come through the ranks is only known X, Y, and Z. And that's the deal, man. Most of these other types of suspension systems, the biggest thing about them usually isn't because it's lightweight. That's the thing, right? Forks, it's, it's a very simple solution to the problem. It's that you can do something to the chassis that conventional forks uh, either can't do or, or won't do. And a lot of that is like the dive, anti-dive mm-hmm. or tuning in so that you don't have dive so that you can have a better control of the chassis as a whole. But then you've got the riders, the loose nuts behind the bars are always the biggest thing to, to tighten, right? So all these riders are used to riding telescopic fork bikes. They want to feel a certain amount of dive when they get on the brakes. They want to know that the chassis is going to do this, the similar thing to the last bike that they had uh, success on which was you know their 125 or their 250 or their 50 or their pocket bike or right and it's additive so only if you could have somebody start on a bike that was simple lightweight easy to work on you know what i mean easy to machine and and have them grow up into that yeah. like with a bike that doesn't dive yeah. and that you get feel off of just because you know the difference between feel between a bike that doesn't dive and another bike that doesn't dive not from a a, f- a fork that that has you crunching down and changing the geometry of the bike drastically just by virtue of the fact that you're on the brakes. I mean, right. it's an, right. there's so many things going on there that happen to be useful, like good, like the fact that the bike does change its rake and trail as you're going through the, the that, stroke. Right. That's a great example. That's a great example because because that is such a huge part of it. Like you're, you're familiar with the concept of like ten thousand hours. Yeah, sure. Okay, so the idea, like, you need to be truly masterful at something. You need to have 10,000 hours of experience with it. It's a, there's a book. Go read it. All, all it comes back to, but, like, like the riders that understand how the chassis dynamic and, like, the, the triangle of the bike changes under braking because now you've squashed the forks or your steering angle is changing, and that changes the dynamic of the bike coming in. And then as you yep. release the brakes, the, the steering is going to change again. Riders who understand that, that's 10,000-hour level shit. That's not like Jensen Beeler riding down the track or Quentin Wilson riding down the track where, like, you know, maybe we've got a 1,000 hours or whatever it is. But, like, you know, we, we can understand it conceptually, but, like, being able to understand what 50% brake lever force versus 45% brake lever force and what that means from a chassis handling dynamic is some crazy crazy shit 
and like and that's what MotoGP and that's what Moto Moto Two and that's what professional racers in general have honed their skill set. Yeah, in. and I could say I'd say that I've seen it at at the national level. Sure, in the U.S. Sure, for sure, sure. Right, but, anybody but at that the could, front of the grid, not the back. Yeah, no doubt. The, it's front to mid of the grid. There are a lot of riders that can that that I'm not. I'm not making it. A, I'm not making it a serious comparison. I'm just saying like like there is there is a there is a point in yeah, your riding ability and your riding yeah. career. Where you take that evolution sure yeah so most of it is your seat of the pants haul right. asser but at some point in time once you really start to understand the dynamics and you've talked to your crew chief enough to know oh that offset will work really well right. on this bike at that track to cure the problem that i have right i'm going to talk to the chassis engineer about that and then the really good riders will get the feedback from the chassis engineer and either not make the change because the chassis engineer has made a case for it, or they'll make the change and go faster. And that's an amazing thing to watch when you get a rider that thinks they know because they had a specific thing happen to them on another bike. And they think, oh, well, I can never have this type of setup on my new bike. I'll give you an example real quick. Uh, Eric Bostrom had been very successful on a Kawasaki Superbike, right? Very successful on, on this very long and tooth bike. And there was a certain type of rear suspension setup. And I'm, I'm going to, I have to kind of take a guess at it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure this was the deal is that you have a, this is probably going too far, but it's, it's either high level of spring preload or high level of spring rate. And then the suspension engineer and the, and, and the rider we're arguing about, well, I, you know, I don't like springs that have too much preload in them. I want the rate to be high. Right. And the, and the, the, the gentleman that was tuning the bike guy named Chris Lessing, who's a genius, who is probably mostly responsible for team Graves Yamaha's successes over the past 10 years. He had to make the case to Eric, like, no, on this chassis, on this bike, this big behemoth of a Yamaha Superbike thousand that's so much different and so much heavier and gnarlier and less refined than your awesome focus Suzuka eight hour weapon. It doesn't work on that. You need to, we need to try a lot of spring preload on this bike at this time and, and watch that happen and then watch his lap times go and then watch him come in and relent and say, yep, yep. I'm, I'm sorry. I tried to lead you down that path, but this, this works on this bike. And that was a really cool thing to watch. Cause then you have this guy with the 10,000 hours and the preconceived notion, almost too much data, too much in his head. And he's not letting the team work, but he had to know he had to have the confidence in the team. Right. And that was, that was the break point. And after that, it was, it was fat city for Chris. Cause then Chris could make any change that he needed to. And then Eric Bostrom would constantly go faster because it was a symbiotic relationship. I think that, I think that proves my point because absolutely where I was going with, it was just this idea of like, you know, we as riders as a whole and MotoGP riders in general, or, or, you know, AMA, AMA Moto America national riders and Moto two national riders, you know, or Moto two world riders. Uh, you know, they've all, they've, they've all taken their, their 10,000 hours or whatever you want to call it into this one direction. And Eric, he took that one direction down the Kawasaki, you know, and he probably knew that Kawasaki inside out, upside down, backward on Tuesdays. But when he went to the Yamaha, he didn't have that 10,000 hours anymore. He had like 9,000 hours or 8,000 hours. I mean, whatever you want to say, there was a lesser understanding and you had to build it back up to get to that same level of proficiency that you have the Kawasaki. Look at that at a larger scale where riders with standard twin spar aluminum frames with telescopic forks and monoshock rears and and how much experience that they've built into that narrow 
style of building a motorcycle and then be like, okay, we're going to change everything about it. You just went from being a rider of 10,000 hours to a rider of like zero hours or a rider of a hundred sure. hours. And to build that back up is going to be a huge process. And that's the problem. That's the problem with Moto2 is no one has any of that base. No one has any hours. So you can't bring in a new chassis and expect it to work unless it, unless it's the most intuitive thing in a hand and it works just, or I should say, I shouldn't say it works, but it, it feels and gives feedback back to the rider, just like the telescopic forks and standard chassis version does. Unless it does it that way, the rider's going to be lost and they're going to be fumbling their way through it. And they're going to be behind the curve. And instead of refining something from 98% ready to 99% ready to 100% ready, you're trying to refine something from like 30% yeah. ready to 40% ready to 50% ready. And it's just not a competition at that point. And that's that's probably the fundamental problem of the whole shebang of Moto2. Do you think we answered Dan's question? <sighs> I, I don't think we even, st- I, I think we got 0.005%. So I, yeah, we, we definitely delved into it in an interesting way, but I don't feel very confident that we, I don't it's, know. It's a thing. It's I, a I have thing. to re, re-listen to the, all this stuff because it's like, what did we just talk about? It's such a whirling dervish. Books and books and books and books have been written on the subject and I still feel like you could read all of them and still not even be close to anything <laughs> close lost. to be an it's expert. It's just like a super bike. I'm going to tell you, this is an analog for this. You get a, say, a super, a, like an R6 that you can't modify, that you're racing in a series where you have to run stock. That is a lot easier setup than a super bike that has all the adjustments and, and you have you can get lost so easily. Swing arm pivots, sure. triple clamps, offsets. Yeah, all these stupid. I mean, you can get so far away. Oh man! Right? Oh man! I have a buddy. I have my buddy Rick Becker. He's totally listening to the show right now. He's probably driving his stupid ass car to work in his little nine to five job, hating life. And he bought this this Aprilia RSV4. And I remember, like, the first thing he's like, "Oh, first thing I'm gonna do is going to change the swing arm pivot." <laughs> and I'm like, first of all, Rick, you might not be as good of a racer as Colin Edwards, but I guarantee you, you change that swing arm pivot, you're not going to notice the difference. He'll tell you he could. There's just no way. A lot, a lot of the there's people that no are way. in it, they see that there's a, it's square. It's it's like a little rectangle. Yeah. Instead of the 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 pivot just being a circle, and they see, ooh, that that's adjustable. I saw that one time on a race bike. I bet that works, right? Well, it's just that idea of like like I remember looking at that RS4, and the RS4 is obviously an amazing machine, and I rant and rave about it every time we talk about it. But it was like the one reason, like like if I got that, I remember when I when I was on the Panigale R, the 1199R at, at Coda, and they were playing around with the swing arm pivot. And I was like, you know what? That's cool that you have that. If I was an owner, I guarantee you everyone that ever does it, like they might change it, but it's going to be a set it and forget it kind of thing. Where it's just like, yeah, I bet you can have all the adjustability in the world, but you know what I'm not going to do while I'm at the track? Fiddle around with that. I might change my suspension settings. I might do my set. Maybe. And, a lot of people are freaked out by just the little, the little knobs on the suspension. You right? know, but like, you know, like I might. But I'm not going to sit there and tear apart my bar, my bike in the middle of the paddock in between sessions looking for that extra time because at the end of the day, I'm out there to have fun. And I guarantee you the bike in its stock form from the factory is going to be more machine. Like if I can't get my lap time like down by another second, it's not because my swing arm's too high or my swing arm's too forward or too low or whatever. It's just because I'm that slow. And and that's the slippery slope of the human, of the, of the, of the ego. And, and I'll you, say, Rick, you are that slow. You are. You know it. <laughs> Wow. Be on, be honest with yourself. Have I met this guy? Was this one of your friends that came up here? No, no, no. But he's friends with them. Okay, yeah, I figured so. It sounds like that era. He's that a good guy. He's Santa laughing. He's, I guarantee you, he's laughing right now. But he knows. He yeah. knows. He knows because 
he knows. He's, he's a Santa Barbara Skippy. They're oh, skippies. he's a Skippy. He's like, what is skippy. the highway that goes up to Solvang? They're up there changing 150, the swing arm 154, pivots. 156. Yeah. Dude, yeah. Next time, just go to Tempesquit Canyon or whatever that is and change your swing arm pivot and then come back down and see how it's But he's not allowed to ride in the street anymore. Oh, His wife yeah. put a kibosh on All right, on Willow it. Springs. Go to streets and then Big Willow and... I think you he's know. a button willow guy. Oh. That tells you everything you need to Putting know. Putting the button button willow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We, we, gotta, need, we, gotta, we need to stop this. This thing is like rabbit hole central. Uh, I think this is the marathon. Yeah. It's good though. I liked it. I, this is one of the more a very enjoyable conversation. I like this one. I guess because it's all techie. and It's because you talk the bolts. whole time. That's just what you like. Yeah, whatever. Just, I, I love when I look at the show and I get it on the audio, the audio software and it's just like this huge line of you talking and it's just like little blips of me. Sorry. I don't know what to tell you. It's all right. I like it. You're a talker. Oh, I do know what to tell you. Um, kick stands up. Oh, hey. Why don't you go outside and play hide and go fuck yourself? <laughs> Good talk, Quentin. See you out all there. Right, later. Get your mic on, Quentin. Mic is on in front of my face. Sitting in front of your face. Is it close enough to my face? If you can do it a little bit closer, that'd be great. Okay, close to the face. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're in the butter zone now. There we go. Butter? Oh, yeah, baby. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, I need to think of a, a thing. A thing? A thing.